Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in German Studies. I am Anna Obererlacher, the host of this episode. Today, we will be talking to Frances Courtney Kneuper about her new book, The Empire at the End of Time, Identity and Reform in Late Medieval German Prophecy. Frances Courtney Kneuper currently holds a position as an Associate Professor of Medieval History at the University of Mississippi. Frances Kneuper, Welcome to the show. Thank you. Francis, I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself. Um, sure. So um, let's see where to begin. Uh, I, I was born in Texas and I attended Rice University uh, for my undergraduate degree. I have a degree there in not in history, actually in art history. Um, but then I, I went on to graduate studies in history at Northwestern University in Evanston, which is outside of Chicago. And um, it is it is there that I, I really became interested in um, questions about uh, dissent in particular and, and ways that um, people have have tried to object to the status quo or to uh, defy sort of the, the current authority of the time and especially religious dissent. Uh, so I, I did a lot of work on uh, things like heresy in the late middle ages. And then I turned from that to, to prophecy, uh, which is, which is what the empire at the end of time is about. Um, I, I came first to the University of Mississippi, actually, while I was still working on my doctorate. So I began teaching here in uh, 2010, I believe, um, and and then taught here for several years as a visiting professor and then as an assistant professor and um, now as an associate professor. Mm-hmm. Interesting, very interesting. Um, Francis, the title of your book, The Empire and the End of Time, could be straight from a TV show or, let's say, a Hollywood film. And indeed, you are writing about stories, a very specific kind of stories, prophecies. Specifically, you examine apocalyptic prophecies in the late medieval Holy Roman Empire. How did you come to write The Empire and the End of Time? Okay, I love that you you said it was it could be like a, a film today. I think that's great because um, when I try to explain to people about prophecies, I, I often refer to films today. Um, so w- what I mean by that is, you know, kind of the, the first thing to know is that prophecies in the middle, middle Ages, they weren't just these kind of odd, um, obscure, you know, like bizarre outlying texts. Um, but instead they were, they were something much more mainstream and uh, they were, they were very popular and they were, they were about visions of the future. And what I explained to people is that um, medieval people were, were worried about the future. They feared uncertainty and they also had an expectation that uh, the world would be ending soon, but but the before the world ended, there would be a, a time of a calamitous time, a time of of upheaval and and violence, and um, and so they created these visions as as ways to kind of 
imagine what could be. And, and the reason I say this is, this is like films today is that we, we have these same fears. Um, we have these same ideas about uh, the future or the unknown, what will it hold? Um, and we create our own visions. So today they're more likely to be um, dystopian novels, for example, or, or dystopian films. Um, but, but they, they express these same kind of, of themes of there will be some calamitous times. There will be some terrible upheaval that the world will have to go through. And you know, what might that look like? And um, so, so people read prophecies in the past for a lot of the same reasons that, that we go to dystopian films today. Um, but to, to let's see. So really you're asking me about how did I get into this topic? Right. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it came through the idea of dissent and that I'm, I'm always interested in, uh, in ways that people objected to current authorities and, and tried to kind of overthrow the norm. Um, and, and it started, as I said, with, with heresy. So I was looking at different religious groups in the late Middle Ages and, and the ways that they uh, expressed ideas that went against the the current thinking of the church or the the current teachings of the church, um, and and one of the groups that I looked at had a kind of prophetic aspect, um, and so it, they combined kind of rejecting church teachings with making these these very dramatic predictions about the future, and I thought, hmm, now this is interesting stuff, uh, and so I dug more and I found. Um, like I said, that there there were all of these these visions of the future, these visions of the end times that that were written and circulating in the late Middle Ages. They were very popular, and um, many of them no scholars had ever really read or or looked at at all. Mm-hmm. Well, and as I understand, uh, you visited a lot of libraries in in the German speaking areas in Europe. Um, what was the material you were working with uh, for this book? And was it, what is it, uh, your book can shine a new light on? So, um, so, so the, maybe the first thing to know is that, um, what a, what a prophecy looks like or what a medieval prophecy looks like. And, and you were right when you said they, they look like stories, um, but they're sort of little stories. They're usually maybe only a couple of, of pages long uh, kind of predictions about uh, a sort of list of events that will take place. Um, and, and as such, they were, they were short enough that they were probably um, shared orally. So people just talking to each other, you know, Hey, Anna, have you heard about uh, this prophecy that before the world ends, there will be a great flood or, you know, this kind of thing. Um, but, but then they also began to be, to be written down and copied and uh, they were, they were copied in, in all kinds of places, but where, where I was looking for them is, is in manuscripts. Um, not because that's the only place that they probably existed, but it's sort of the only place where they still remain. Uh, so, um, in sort of large manuscripts copied in, uh, 
in both German and Latin in the 14th and 15th century, uh, you can find many, many copies of, of prophecies written by, by different people. Um, one of the most striking discoveries for me was that these prophecies were being shared to a large degree among lay people. Um, so meaning people who were, who were not a part of the church, who were, were outside of, of clerical authority. Uh, and, and this was something that was quite new uh, because, for one, lay people actually weren't really reading and writing very much before the 14th century. Uh, so kind of with the rise of literacy, vernacular literacy, there, there also was a rise in the, the writing of, copy, of, of prophecies and the copying of prophecies and the sharing of them among us. So it's just really a new group of people. Um, so before this, we would find uh, knowledge about the end times and people writing about the end times, but they would, they would all be writing in Latin and they would all be male clerics. Uh, and and that was sort of it was considered a part of Christian teaching, and because they had access to this Christian teaching, that was kind of an acceptable thing for them to write about. Well, suddenly in the 14th and especially the 15th century, uh, we find all sorts of people writing and reading about the end times and what's going to happen before the end times. We find a, a beer brewer, for example, um, <laughs> who's who's he's he's writing down prophecies. He didn't. He didn't invent them himself, but he's he's got copies of them and he's he's copying them into books. Um, and then we have other we just kind of a, the the more ordinary uh, level of literate person is is accessing these prophecies. Well, it's very interesting, and I'm sure that's nothing you would uh, usually expect. Um, well, let's have a look right into your book. Um, what How would you describe, and I think you, you said some of the things uh, right now, how would you describe the conditions and practices of text production and perception in that time uh, with regards to the writing people, institutions, language, and contexts? Yes, well, so um, the, the late Middle Ages in general, it was a time of increased um, vernacular literacy. So, I, I mean, we, we could call it an explosion, really, where um, people were very interested in in reading and writing. And, and so, I mean, people outside the church became interested in, in reading and writing. And uh, so there was, there was an enormous rise in the amount of literature that was produced that could be read that wasn't in Latin. Uh, and many more different kinds of people were reading and writing. Uh, so uh, kind of uh, middling level people, especially in towns, uh, townspeople were interested in, in reading and also in uh, having their own copies of books. I mean, of course, in the end, this is going to lead to the invention of the printing press, right? There's a, a, a great demand um, among many different kinds of people for reading material. And, uh, and so uh, Gutenberg is going to meet that demand uh, by coming up with a way uh, that, to to produce more books and to produce them more cheaply um so so prophecy uh it, it makes sense that that prophecies would become something that were absorbed by lay people at this time because they're excited and interested in absorbing lots of different kinds of things um one of one of the things that 
I, I found that was quite interesting was the, the use of, of German as opposed to Latin. And we already kind of touched on that, but this is a really, it's a big deal. It's a big surprise uh, because there was until, until this time, there was an expectation that um, literature regarding the, regarding religion and especially regarding anything that you might think of as, as kind of sensitive uh, to do with religion, that that should be written in Latin. That was, that was really the prerogative of, of clerics, of male clerics. Um, and that if anything was going to be written and disseminated in the vernacular, um, it, it needed to be a kind of more basic, right? That, 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 um, what they called what what clerics would call the simple people, the simple lay people. They they couldn't read, you know, complex theology or sort of these these more uh, complicated ideas. They they were given simple texts, simple pious texts that um, that they couldn't possibly misinterpret. Um, well, prophecies are not simple pious texts. They're they're in fact uh, quite dramatic, and they often contain criticism of the church or, or almost always the ones I looked at contain criticism of the current church. Um, so for those to be translated into German and written in German and, and shared among the ordinary lay people is, is a very dramatic event. Your book is divided into three main parts. The first part we just talked about, that's the context. And in the second part, you um, take a look into individual prophecies um, of this late medieval German-speaking Europe. And um, can you give us an overview? What interested you in these prophecies in general before we take a deeper look into each one of these prophecies? Well, I mean, first of all, I could not deny readers the, the chance to hear some of these uh, descriptions and, and the stories that come out in these prophecies because they're they're really they're delightful uh, and they're they're very fascinating. So these are they're they're quite creative texts. They're very imaginative and uh, they're places where it seems that um, late medieval people could really kind of let their imaginations run free. Um, so they, they're, they're very visual uh, and they contain, you know, as I said, they have usually like a very sinister kind of violent element to them, but they also contain uh, beautiful imagery. Uh, some of my, my favorite examples, um, there's, There's a prophecy by, it's actually originally by Hildegard of Bingen, who was a 12th century abbess, but it was quite popular in the late Middle Ages. And it's a description of the church imagined as a beautiful woman who is as tall as the sky. Um, and she's wearing this, this beautiful dress. Uh, but then if you look more closely, part of the dress is, is blackened. Uh, and then if you look closely, it's, it's ripped and uh, her shoes are muddied. And so, you know, then, then she kind of goes on to explain you know, that this is the state of the corruption of the church and corruption of current society. But it's this, it's just this beautiful visual that you get. Um, and, and many of the prophecies have this. They, they, have, um, they have mermaids in them. They have the doors of St. Mark's kind of floating into the sky. They have... Um, Uh, imaginary 
creatures that are half eagle and and half man and and so part of it is just the the fun of really digging into these rich images well that's i could go on forever to listen to what what you're talking about it's it's really so contemporary also i that's think right. the pictures yeah <laughs> yes absolutely i mean th there's 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 something about it that that is kind of timeless mm -hmm. <laughs> um well you start the this part of the analysis of um the prophecies with the gamelion prophecy you mentioned that for centuries the gamelion prophecy has created a puzzle for scholars why is that and what makes this prophecy so special well i think One thing to say kind of about prophecy in general is um, that, you know, I, I said before, they're often short. And so they, they could be copied into a manuscript and you find them. Sometimes um, a scribe is, is just copying some other text and he's got, I say he because they were mm. really almost all he's in, in, in the manuscripts that I found. But so he's he's got like a little space at the end of the page. So he just copies in. A prophecy here, um, you know, kind of slips one in here and there. Um, that they, they are untitled, uh, and they they are um, anonymous for the most part. Uh, so, even trying to sort of figure out um, what, how, even trying to to find them and then to identify a text uh, is is very difficult uh, because another thing that people seem to medieval people seem to have liked to do with prophecies is to change them to, to suit uh, their needs. Um, so they, you know, you kind of picture how this works. Um, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm a, a scribe and I come across this, this prophecy and it's, um, you know, it's, it's predicting that these things are going to happen. The, the clergy is, is going to be attacked and uh, there's going to be a new church. Uh, and there's going to be an earthquake in, uh, let's say, 1415. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm reading this and it's 1416. And there hasn't been an earthquake. <laughs> so I, I say, you know, I read this prophecy and it really seems true. I think there's a lot of things about it that really strike me as true, but they They clearly got the date wrong for the earthquake. So I'm just going to change that. I think what they really meant was, I don't know, 1417. Um, or, or maybe uh, I'm going to add this thing to it. You know, I'm going to say, um, and, the, and a new emperor will be elected because I think that that's a part of it. So there's this, um, there's this sense that, that prophecies were, were sort of texts that you could take apart And you could use the parts that you wanted. You could add in different sections and kind of make Frankenstein prophecies out of them. Uh, and and I really think when when people did this, that they they thought that they were only bringing it closer to the truth by doing that. You, you understand? They they didn't. Um, I don't think they did it cynically. Uh, but uh, this is something. This is something that certainly that happened with the Gamaliel prophecy. Um, And and so it, what it means is then you you read a prophecy and you you find different versions and um, sometimes prophecies are put together and and to to try to take them apart and figure out uh, what what is the 
kind of the original, if we even want to say that, um, can be can be quite a mystery and can be quite a challenge. And, and that's something that, that happened with the Gamaliel prophecy and, and also several of the others. Well, and prophecies can have a significant um, influence on um, the development of um, a city, an area, and an identity, as you point out also later in the book. Um, the second prophecy you analyze is the so-called Letter of Brother Siegwald. Can you tell us a bit, uh, a bit about the text and its significance to the history of of the German city of Nuremberg and for an understanding of prophecy and German identity in the Middle Age. Oh, yes, absolutely. This is, I, I think this is such an interesting prophecy. Um, so, so this is a, this is a prophecy that's sort of written as a letter and um, it, the, the premise of it is that uh, a holy hermit named Brother Siegfeld was uh, commanded by God to write a prophetic letter and to, to hide this letter away for future times. Uh, and he, so, so then he was supposed to hide three keys at significant locations. And, um, and so it was only when these keys were found that the, the moment would sort of be ripe and the letter would reappear and it would inform its, its readers about future events And, and one of the most important events was that um, Nuremberg itself would become uh, a, a righteous city. Basically, it would become the new Rome. Um, so, so there's this, I mean, partially it's, it's almost like a treasure map story. Um, so it's this kind of, you know, it's, it's hidden and it will only be rediscovered at the right time. And you've got to find the keys and the keys are, are supposed to be hidden in locations that were significant to the history of Nuremberg. Um, but you can imagine if you were a proud citizen of Nuremberg in uh, the 15th century, uh, this idea that Nuremberg's were would become that Nuremberg itself would become the new Rome and that Nuremberg's would, would become kind of the, the righteous new Romans. Well, that would have quite a ring. Uh, mm -hmm. And, and it was, it was especially significant uh, because of the history of the city of Nuremberg itself, which had strong ties to the Holy Roman emperor and, um, and, and one of the things I write about in this chapter is uh, that the that the the um, imperial regalia, for example, had been translated from uh, the city of Prague to the city of Nuremberg, and and this was considered um, very significant for Nuremberg's. They thought that this was a kind of uh, legitimizing of the city of Nuremberg and and its importance as an imperial center um, and an imperial heart. And the, this was once a year, the insignia was all displayed in the regalia and, uh, and the, the, it was considered holy as well. And there would be a procession. Um, there was also a market associated with it. So um, that there was an economic kind of uplift as well that took place, but, but it was very important to uh, Nuremberg citizens to think of themselves as uh, the heart of the empire and as, as having this kind of special identity as kind of the, the, the true Germans 
we could say, or, or really the true Romans, because there was an idea that, um, that the, the German empire, I'm sorry, that, that the Roman empire had been translated to the Germans and that the Germans were, were now going to be the true Romans because um, they were righteous and, and worthy of that role. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think, very important for this period of time because Germany didn't have a real center, right? Like Rome or, or other countries like Paris or London. Um, Germany wasn't quite as... as um, structured in that way politically and and also in, in terms of language i think yes absolutely and, and that's um one of the the points of of my book are kind of one of one of the important things that i i learned from the prophecies is this issue of of german identity um and and that very much there was a a, a feeling in the the late middle ages um Or a lot of scholars would argue there was no such thing as a German identity. That that the, the if you were to ask someone, um, you know, what are you, uh, they wouldn't say I'm a German. You know, maybe they would say, well, I'm a Nuremberger, or um, you know, I'm an I'm an Augsburger. But the, but uh, this was a this was really something that was developing an idea of well, what what am I, and what does it mean to be German, uh, and. And I found that prophecies were a place where where this question could uh, be expressed. Mm -hmm. And some of the prophecies, as you pointed out earlier, were really popular at the time. Um, Also, the prophecy you write in your book, um, the third uh, example you give, the Auffahrtabend prophecy. Um, What is this prophecy about and What made it so popular? Ah, uh, yes, the Alfred Aben prophecy. Yes, this this one was incredibly popular. Um, uh, we, I, I'm I'm trying to remember. We have I think 25 examples that are extant, and uh, you know, since we could say, ah, uh, that's that's probably only a quarter of of what actually existed at the time. I mean, we're talking about something like a hundred copies or probably even more than that. Um, this one, this the Alfred Abin prophecy, it, it makes a very strong statement about the church. And, and when I say the church, I mean, I mean the, the uh, hierarchical church with its head as the, the papacy in Rome. And um, it's, it's very imp- important to distinguish between that the church as an institution and kind of Christianity more generally. So the Alfred Abin prophecy is highly critical of the church as an institution. Um, and and it's, it's quite vicious, actually, in, in what it predicts um, for clerics. And I was, I was going to look to see if I could read you a quote. Um, I'm not sure that I can find one that quickly. But the, it, it predicts uh, that the it, it predicts the downfall of the church. It predicts that um, clerics who are too prideful will be will be cast down and broken. Um, but then what's what's important here is as well is that this will be done by Germans. Uh, that, that the Germans have a special role 
in this overthrow of the church and that in the in place of the institution that exists now the germans will create their own church they will have a new a new free church that that's that is german mm-hmm. and that is I, I, I mean it's this is quite shocking um for the time because of course there was only supposed to be one church i mean now we kind of think you know all oh, there are many different churches and many ways to be christian but no there was supposed to be one church and there was supposed to be one obedience and for um for german speakers to be able to to fantasize in this way about um casting off that roman church and creating their own um this is very exciting mm-hmm. yeah indeed <laughs> Well, you would uh, expect that from a later period of time, maybe with uh, the, the 18th century, um, the Enlightenment, uh, the, the critic uh, on um, at, on the church and and the clerics. But in this period of time, it's 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 really astonishing. Yes, no, I I, I think so, and I I think um, it the. the That, that I think that prophecies were a special place where um, people felt that they could, you know, because it's um, it's in the subjunctive, right? It, it's it's not. Um, they're not saying it's happening now. They're not even necessarily saying it should happen, uh, but they can kind of play out these very violent scenarios and and um, possibly express, you know, their their kind of secret political wishes or their secret collective wishes um, in a way that, that they might not be able to do in a more straightforward manner. Mm-hmm. So uh, put uh, the ideas into a story, uh, kind of a fictional story, but um, yeah. <laughs> yes, yes, mm-hmm. exactly. But a very special kind of fictional mm-hmm. story, right? Because mm-hmm. um, in theory, um, these these predictions are, are visions from God and mm-hmm. and therefore um, they are in, in some way they're righteous and they're they're inevitable so you could kind of you could fantasize and put it into the story and at the same time you you have this um, this extraordinary legitimacy that you can claim for them you mentioned that the letter of brother Siegwald um, were in form of letters and also the last um, chapter of of this part of the book you close with um, the Wiersberger letters um, what's the significance of, of these letters oh, yes so um, the Wiersberger letters they're a little bit different from the others um, in in several ways they're they're a little bit less stories they have kind of less of the beautiful visuals um but but the most interesting difference the most exciting difference is that they're actually written by laymen and um laymen that we can we can pinpoint who they were historically um so it's 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 very rare um for expressions of dissent and they're they're highly critical of the church they're extremely critical and violent uh it's very rare for lay people to be able to write those kind of commentaries about the church and to have them survive now i'm, I'm certain that other lay people did did write kind of vitriolic texts regarding the church but um but usually those don't survive uh, they They are condemned, 
uh, and they're destroyed. Uh, so to, to be able to find these letters written by two brothers, um, or it, there were two brothers who disseminated them at any rate, um, Levine and Johannes, uh, and Johannes, we believe, is probably the one who actually wrote the letters, but they, they wrote these letters um, predicting terrible events that would occur before the end of the world. Um, in, in these events, uh, especially the, they condemned the clergy and they predicted violent deaths for clergy members. Uh, they also predicted that the, the German Empire would have a kind of special role in the reform of the church. Uh, but they, they wrote these out in the vernacular and they sent them to authorities all across the German Empire. So um, they sent them, for example, to the the city council of Nuremberg, the the Rat of Nuremberg. They sent them to um, the head of the Franciscan Order in uh, in Germany. They they sent them to the the heads of the universities um, and to other city councils and to, to princes. So they, they thought, you know, here we have this message about the future. Um, it's incredibly important. Uh, this is coming soon. And um, we're, we're, we've got to share it with everyone who's significant in the German empire so that Germans can be prepared. Mm-hmm. Well, it's very interesting what you say about the distribution of, of these uh, prophecies, because it seemed to be, um, um, well, easier to distribute um, these letters than to um, copy a book and give that uh, or send that to another place. Is that also a reason why these prophecies are so, became so popular? Because they were, uh, it was, significantly uh, easier to distribute them. Yes, I, I think that that's probably true. Yes, um, that they, so so I suspect that um, oftentimes they, they were, you know, they were copied on a, a sheet or two of paper and, and then they were shared with somebody else and they could be shared easily that way. Um, we, we, we don't have examples of that anymore. I can only think of one time uh, where, where there's a manuscript um, where this is actually a mentor of mine. He opened the manuscript and a single sheet of paper fell out with a prophecy written on it. Uh, and, you know, but it, it's a clue, right? That, that people were writing these down on a, a single sheet of paper or a front and back. And they, they were able to easily share those um, and, and to pass them around. Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, just imagine how many things like that, though, there probably were that have been lost to us. Um, if someone didn't kind of get struck by it and say, oh, I'm going to write this into a manuscript, uh, it's gone. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, it's, it's astonishing. I, I'm really excited about this project, really. <laughs> um, what, what also interested me was um, in your analysis, you always follow the tracks of authorship. And today we are used that books have authors, but in the Middle Age, the concept of authorship was a completely different one. Uh, can you tell us a bit about that and maybe about the authors of this, these prophecies and how the texts um, have been written by these authors? Yes. Well, so, I mean, you're absolutely right. Um, there, there was not, we have this, 
we have this idea of like an original text um, that's written by one author, right? And uh, um, so you know, you say, well, what's the original, and and who was the author? And and people in the Middle Ages, um, they didn't really view texts that way in general. They had much more kind of fluid uh, relationship with texts, I would say, where um, the, they they weren't they weren't concerned necessarily about um, authenticity in in the way that people in, in modern times would be. Um, and, and so what that means, and then in, I think with prophecies even more so. Um, so so what that means for prophecies is, is uh, the, on the one hand, they were really treated as tools. And, and um, so tools to, to take and to use as they could be used, which means, you know, in some cases they could be manipulated, um, but it also means they could kind of, they, they were fluid. They could be shared, they could be added to, they could be subtracted from. Uh, they, they didn't have some authentic original form that you could ever get back to. Uh, and it's, it's trying to, trying too hard to do it. It's, it's a, it's a big challenge. Um, and, and they also, this was a genre that was in, intentionally anonymous. Um, it, it intentionally, uh, many, most of the authors kind of obscured their, their, their writing or their authorship. Um, so, it's, it's very rare. I mean, in the case of the Veersbreaker brothers, yes, we actually know who wrote them. And it's amazing because in most cases, um, we don't know who the author was. It was more likely if they wanted an author, they would they would just pick someone who um, had some authority and they would attribute the prophecy to that person. Um, so, you know, they, they, some one example is uh, the Alfred Abend prophecy was attributed to a theologian, Heinrich von Langenstein, because he... Um, uh, there, there are plausible reasons why he might have written such a thing, and because he was uh, a clerical authority. So, you know, good name to attach to a prophecy, but of course, he wasn't the actual author. Um, Hildegard of Bingen, I mentioned before, but um, she was a very well respected prophetess of an earlier age. She was also a German. And, and so, um, if I came across a good prophecy, um, I could attach it to her name and, and that would give it kind of some clout that it might not otherwise have. Uh, but, but yeah, very much. These are, these are things that were, uh, that they traveled on their own with, without having roots in the same way that we think of texts having, which is, it's an incredible challenge for a historian, but it, it's also extremely fascinating. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I can imagine that. <laughs> Um, well, in part three of your book, you concentrate on the themes in late medieval German prophecy, especially the context of the church and the clergy is therefore of vast importance. How are these prophecies connected with these institutions? How are they, how are you illustrating in your book the dynamics between the church, the clergy and the prophet, prophetic thought? So I, I, I mean, I alluded to this a bit, but um, virtually every single one of the prophecies that I encountered um, contains predictions regarding the overthrow of the current church. Uh, they're, they're criticisms of the 
the church structure and especially of the behavior of the Roman clergy. Um, so, for example, uh, one prophecy accuses bishops of of arrogance and gluttony and and lewdness. Um, they they often accuse uh, clergy members of hypocrisy. So there's a sense that um, they disapprove of the lifestyle of of especially the higher clergy and that they're not uh, they're not doing their jobs correctly. Right? They're they're supposed to be um, behaving like the apostles and they're supposed to be living lives of of piety and chastity and poverty. And according to these prophecies, instead, what they're doing is um, living like very wealthy princes and um they are they're not chaste and uh they are they have they're eating these vast meals and they're drinking tons of wine and they've got um huge palaces and they've got uh, stables full of horses and you know all of this kind of stuff and uh and then the prediction is well they will be overthrown. They, some will be murdered in their beds. Some will be burned. Um, I mean, they're, they're, they're quite violent. They're really sinister. There will be bloodshed. Um, their, their horses will be taken away and instead they'll be given hobby horses. Uh, their jewels will be taken away that their gold will be taken and they'll, they'll be given lead. So there's, there's all of this kind of, uh, the, the clergy will get what is coming to them from, from the perspective of the prophecies. Um, so, so what I argue is that really prophecies became a place where people uh, could have these kind of conversations where they could express these, these kind of critiques of the church. Now um, it's important again, as I say, it's, it's not a critique of Christianity. It's, it's not a critique of pious Orthodox belief um, or of practices. It's not a critique of things that we'll see later in Martin Luther, like indulgences or um, prayers for the dead. No, it's rather it's a critique of the, the the current hierarchy and the current authority. And there's an idea that it will it will all be taken down in these cataclysms of the end times. Yeah, and um, well, the second part of of um, the, or, or the Yeah, the second part of the third part of your book is again about um, the German identity. And you pointed that out um, before. Would you like to summarize that idea and, and what, what you fi found out in your research about um, these connections between these prophecies and the German identity? German identity that wasn't a fixed idea yet in that time, or at least we thought it wasn't. Yes, right. Well, so I, I mean, I should say this is something that I, I wasn't expecting when I when I began researching prophecies. Um, I would read, you, know, you you find them, and I would read them, and I thought, hmm, that's remarkable. It's in German. Um, oh, look, this one's in German as well. And I started to count, and I thought, well, uh, more of them are, are written in German than in Latin. What could that tell me? And so the first thing I thought is, well, obviously, it means that. Germans are reading them. <laughs> They must be intended for Germans. They're the only ones who could actually be reading these texts. Well, hmm. Now, so so what could that tell me? And I started to think about um, the this idea: if something is written in Latin, that it's it's for an international audience, right? That it's it's speaking to 
all Christians, or at least all Christians who are who are literate and can read it. Um, but if something is written in German, then it's exclusive in a way. It's it's meant for a certain group. Uh, and and then I I looked at the content, of course, of the prophecies, and um, they talk about we the Germans uh, and we the people of the German Empire. And then this this comes up often as a theme and. That very much surprised me because it 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 really is uh, the the kind of historical convention is that there was no such thing as German in the late Middle Ages that this this was not a self conscious identity that existed and uh, I I thought well wait a second <laughs> uh, so, somebody if if they're writing you know we the germans and they're writing in german and um they're 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 really giving germans a special role in these prophecies usually as kind of chastisers and reformers um then i think we're looking at a place where a german identity is is being built uh so th- that somebody must have been asking themselves you know what does it mean to be German? What what is a German? And um, and that this was one of the ways that they were answering that question, uh, is is by by thinking about uh, kind of in this imaginary place in these visions what what Germans might contribute to the future, mm-hmm. um, and and so as I started to map that out, I found yeah it very much carries out through the prophecies that many of these prophecies make some reference to Germans or the Germans or. Um, even just by being in the German language, they're they're at least um, indicating that there's a special group that they they might be intended for. How challenging was it for you to translate these texts into present times, not only in terms of language, but also um, in terms of their exegesis? Um, what are the challenges or maybe advantages of working with these texts? No, I, I think that, that they're very challenging. I mean, I will say on the one hand, um, they're they're fairly simply written. Um, so, and and I think this is because they are they're meant for kind of a an ordinary level of education. You know, so somebody in the 15th century who could read could pick up one of these texts and read and understand it. So, uh, you know, unlike trying to read some complicated theological tract. Um, it, it's it's rather straightforward in the language, but um, but of course uh, the, the the translation was was really challenging. I mean, we're we're talking about um, a form of German. Uh, it's 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 not really Middle High German, and it's not really early Modern German. It's kind of somewhere in between those two, and so I would um, I, I would have to look a lot of places uh, t- to. To refer, when I when I couldn't understand what a, a word was referring to, I would have to look a lot of places. Um, so so that part in itself was a challenge, and um, and certainly trying to. I, I think there are a lot of levels of translation. So the first one is just kind of what I started with: this idea of just explaining to people what a prophecy even is, and um, and and why it might be significant, uh, and this idea that. Um, that the prophecies are, they're not just meant for entertainment and they're not just meant to frighten people, but that they're actually um, complicated sources uh, with 
with sophisticated messages that are worth studying. So, so there's first, there's just that level of translation. And, um, and then there's trying to get into the medieval mind and to understand what these, these images and these illusions might've meant to them. Um, and, and uh, sometimes it can be quite difficult. I mean, so, so, I'm trying to think of an easy example, um, something like that. Uh, if you saw the eagle, um, we would say, "Oh, okay. Well, that that means the empire, right?" That's kind of an easy example. Um, so, people in the late Middle Ages, if they if they saw an eagle, they understood, "Oh, that means the empire." Or, um, I don't know, if you saw a a a, a three tiered tiara. You know, you would say, oh, "Okay, well, that that means the Pope," um, but then there are others that are much, much more difficult. It's, it's very difficult to figure out well, what did that mean to somebody at the time. What what are the possible range of meanings that that symbol had for someone in the late Middle Ages? And you have to decode it, um, which is it's uh, really always the same things that are the challenges are also what makes it fun. <laughs> so it's, it's both of those things at once. It's mm, great. Um, I would like to um, turn our attention to the last part of your book or almost the last part, the appendix, because I find it astonishing what you put together here in this book. I think it's, it's really worth mentioning. Um, it's a little extra, I would say. Um, there are descriptions of the manuscripts you used for your research. What information um, do they contain and how do they contribute to future research? Uh, yes, um, this is, you know, I was, I was trying to, to think how many manuscripts I've got here. I think something like uh, 50 uh, that I described in detail. So I, I, I thought that it would be, for future research, I thought it would be really important to catalog all of the manuscripts, at least that I was aware of, um, that, that contained prophetic material. Uh, and, and so, so, you know, I give the, the manuscript and the signature, and then I try to give a description of, of what other material is available in the manuscript, what language it's in, um, provenance whenever possible, um, and context as in, was it, was it clerical? Was it a lay person? You know, kind of whatever we can know about it. Um, and this was really important for me because one of the things that I was very interested in was this context, you know, what, what people were, were reading prophecies and what people were copying prophecies um, and, and what can we know about them. And, and one thing that maybe is worth mentioning is that I often found that prophecies were, were in manuscripts with other pious material. I think that's worth mentioning because, um, you know, as I've said, they're, they're highly critical of the church and yet they, they'll be found in manuscripts alongside, um, sermons or lists of prayers or kind of, um, uh, texts for lay people, uh, you know, uh, explaining, uh, the 10 commandments or this kind of thing. And so there's a suggestion that you could be a pious Christian a uh, pious, probably German Christian, and that you could um, also, you, you could be reading sort of normal pious text, but then you could also be reading this very radical prophetical ma material and that um, 
there wasn't a conflict between the two, mm-hmm. that you could do both together, um, which is very interesting. But I think uh, you know, just for people going forward, yeah, so um, they won't have to do this the searching <laughs> that I did, right? I mean, uh, you know, there, I'm sure, uh, it, I mean, one thing that started to happen to me at the end is um, I would joke, I would find a new copy of a prophecy sort of every day. Um, and, it, you know, it not, usually it was a prophecy I already knew about and not just a brand new one, although sometimes it was a brand new one, but I would find another copy. I would, I would look through manuscripts or a list of manuscripts and up, oh, there's another one. Up, oh, there's another one. Up, you know, and I, so I kept having to update and update and update. And I thought, oh my gosh, I'm never, I'm never going to get to the end. Um, but that it, I mean, I think that's significant too, for kind of how, um, how many are around. So I'm sure, you know, tomorrow we'll find another manuscript that, that isn't in here, but at least, um, there's, there's a list for people to start from. So if, if people want to do, um, more research on, on prophecy, and I certainly hope that they do. Um, they they can start with this list and and then add to it from there. It's great. It's beautiful. I I like the idea that um, your book is not just you didn't just finish the book. You opened another chapter of research there. I think so a, a place where people could start working on, and that's 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 great. <laughs> Uh, yes, I, I really, I really hope that people do. I really hope that that that's what happens because um, it, you know, as I said, so many of these sources had never been had never been discovered, had never been read or studied, um, which means that, that there is so much still to do and so much still to think about with them. Mm-hmm. And will you continue working with prophecies? You know, I, 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 in some ways, I am. Um, so the, the book that I'm working on now is I, when I was looking for prophecies, what I also found were a lot of, um, writings against prophecy, which makes sense, right? So on the one hand, all of these people are copying and reading prophecies. And on the other hand, there are many sort of authorities saying, oh, this is not a good idea. Um, you know, uh, prophecy, Uh, should not be spread among lay people. Prophecy is something that is is um, very sensitive and dangerous, and you have to be very careful with it. And there are all of these rules about who can actually know the future and um, you know, what what they should share with people. And so that's the side I'm looking at now. I'm kind of looking at um, access to knowledge of the future and the disputing, you know, <laughs> who should be allowed to have this knowledge of the future? Should lay people be allowed to have it? Should women be allowed to have it? Um, so, so in a way I'm continuing, but I'm kind of looking at the other side. Mm-hmm. Well, we are excited about uh, the things to come. <laughs> um, would, would you like to add anything about the book we just talk about the empire at the end of time i you know when i when i tell people about the book i do think you know the the number one thing is is to understand that um the prophecies at the time that they that they were ubiquitous that um they they weren't bizarre outliers and marginal that they were actually very much kind of ordinary Uh, popular reading material, and um, and that we need to pay attention to things like that, both in the past, um, 
but I think still today we our visions of the future look different, but uh, we can still study them to find um, clues to many of the same kinds of things. So how we dissent, um, how we critique the status quo, and how we collectively form an identity. These are these are things that we can study in the past and we can study in prophecies, but then we can also study them in in the present. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you very much for this very exciting and interesting insights into the work of your book and and the context. Um, uh, it's, it's, it's really exciting. Thank you. Um, well, we've taken a lot of your time of your time now francis um well i'm i can't wait for the next projects <laughs> and thank you very uh, much and um well i would like to thank you very much for being on the show tonight and uh, i really enjoyed talking to you oh it was my pleasure thank you for having me thank you goodbye and take care goodbye Bye.